0: G'day mate, welcome to episode 74 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In today's episode, we are going to be having a look at some of the pitfalls and the things we need to be careful of when it comes to the performance management chart on training peaks. Then we're also going to take a deep dive into nutrient deprivation or fasted training, how we can manipulate our muscle glycogen to get the endurance adaptations we are after let's get into it
1: welcome to the exponential performance podcast join sports scientist and performance coach Matty graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are g'day mate
0: welcome to episode 74 of the exponential performance podcast it is so good to have you here back with another lockdown isolation podcast with the man
1: himself Nick Taylor how you doing mate i'm well thank you i'm well as i sit here watching the first little bits of snow falling out of the sky um in Dunedin for for winter so winter is certainly here amongst lockdown
0: yeah the uh the snow's right down on the hills here uh in the Wanaka area Looks like Snow Farm, Uh, they look like they're almost ready to open based on their webcam. There's a heap of snow up there and even snow down on the lower hills here today. So it's definitely cooling down, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, good thing for inside training's already ramped up for for 99% of people probably. Uh, Now that the temperature's dropped, we can continue training inside. We're all set up ready to go.
0: Yeah, and it'll hopefully stop all of those people wanting to go to the beach during lockdown and <laughs> get into issues about driving places.
1: This is true, yes. Yes, no, keep keep everyone inside, keep the fires going. And how's that
0: training of yours
1: been going? Good, good. I had a had a big week last week on, on the old Zwift. Um, I think I rode seven days straight or something silly, um, about 12 hours or something like that too, so... Been good actually. I'm really enjoying it. Um, had another couple of couple of races um, on on the old Swift. Um, it's always an interesting interesting thing. I'm, I've never trained properly with a power meter on my bike, but now that you're sort of training consistently with power um, and starting to notice some of those changes that are going on, it's quite a cool concept. Uh, I see why people gravitate towards that for their bike training, especially.
0: Absolutely, the value of power uh, on the bike is is very high. I mean, if you can, if you've got a power meter on your bike, or you you know you are able to get one on, it makes a huge difference to the training if you use that data properly. It's just like those heart rate monitors and uh, GPSs, isn't it? A lot of people exactly. have them, but don't really take much notice of of the numbers that are coming out of them, and they just become expensive speedos.
1: Yes, yes they do and and I guess Zwift could be the same, you know it can be a nice leisurely ride if you want to be with some some other people or it can be a, a really good training tool um, you just have to watch, I think that the trap I'm falling into is just doing too much high intensity stuff again on it so I just need to dial back and, and do some longer kilometres but that's right, mm. at this stage nothing on the schedule until October uh, where hopefully, hopefully me and the coveted Walker boys will be back up to Rotorua to take on the 100Ks up there. Um, Although the shout out to them would be, only I am currently entered in the 100Ks. All the rest of them are entered in 50. So if they they want to step up and 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 show them show them who's who's boss, then they can join me at the 100K option.
0: Racing the big boys race. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a long way to go for 50Ks.
0: <laughs> oh, it sounds like the challenge has been issued. That's all I can say. That's all I can. Say. I'm going to stay out of it. I'm going to stay right out of it. <laughs> um, interesting comment you make there, Nick. Around you know, because jumping on Zwift is and often you you know competitiveness sort of runs away on you pretty quickly, doesn't it? Like that's you know why we want to want to, we want to race on there. We want to beat people wow. as soon as there's those people around us. And the same as Strava, if you're always logging Strava times, then your rides become going out to get Strava segments uh, and all of your training turns into higher intensities than is potentially required at that time um, and not necessarily really high intensity either because races aren't you know a four minute block that you know a long race so you're not actually doing super high intensity you're just doing sort of moderately high intensity for a long time which makes you really tired it does puts a lot of fatigue into the system so that's something we need to be really aware of especially as more people take their training onto to Zwift is just managing that properly because won't surprise me uh, in a week or so or maybe it's even starting to creep in now with all those lockdown Zwift training that people will start to get quite tired uh, and run down and remember, winter's not even on us yet, so we're going to get halfway through winter and everyone's going to be burnt out with no motivation. Um, so keep that in your back of your mind. I don't want to be the uh, the negative Nelly or take, being the fun police when it comes to riding on Zwift, but we need to think about those things uh, long-term as well, playing that long game.
1: Yeah, too right. And if there's anyone out there that's running on Zwift, I'd love to love to hear from you how you find it. Send us a picture of your setup because... I see these people running along the side of the, the bike or the roads that we're biking on, um, but I've never actually talked to anyone that's got a treadmill set up to do it. So it'd be quite interesting to see how you find it as a indoor training tool.
0: Mm, absolutely. It'd definitely make the treadmill a little more interesting, wouldn't it?
1: It would. It would.
0: All righty, team. We're going to jump into our Training Peak series, continuing on from last week around the performance management chart. And I just wanted to cover a few more things around that today and go a little bit deeper on, onto some of the things we just need to be aware of when we're using that performance management chart. And I forgot to mention last week or the, the time before, I'm pretty sure that the performance management chart is on, is part of the premium subscription to Training Peaks. So if you've got the basic account and it's the basic free account, you won't have access to uh, view the performance management chart if you are an athlete who's on a coaching account, so if you're linked in with a coach like Nick or myself, we have, uh, we obviously pay to have athletes on our coaching accounts and we can see all of the performance management charts at our end, but you can't necessarily see them at your end unless you're paying for a premium membership. So I guess if you want to see it, Uh, and know more about it, you can always ask your coach to send you a screenshot of your current performance management chart. Or if you want to invest a little bit into your training, you can always pay for an upgrade to that premium membership. But often, uh, as a coach, I find that I like to send my athletes updates around it, but not get them too involved in it because a lot of people get caught up in the numbers and it uh, uh, becomes a little bit obsessive. Uh, and I'll talk about that in, in a minute. But there are also free alternatives. Uh, so Strava, they have their own uh, performance management chart. It's called something different. I think it's called like fatigue and freshness or whatever it might be. Now, I can hear you saying, well, that's not free. You're correct. That isn't free. That's part of the Strava premium membership. But you can get this little add-on to your uh, or an extension for, uh, for Google, and it's called Elevate. And Elevate is a free extension that you can uh, put into Google. Uh, I, I guess that's how it works. don't actually know how this extension thing works, but you, you download it anyway, and it's sitting on your, on your web browser. And it takes all of your information from Strava, all that training data, and pretty much pump, pumps out a performance management chart for free, which is pretty cool. So that there is the free option that links in with Strava. So if you're already uploading your data to Strava, uh, and you want a free alternative rather than having to pay for their premium account to get that performance management chart, you could always have a look at Elevate. Now, the only caveat to that is I don't know the full details about the calculations or the algorithms that they have in place for calculating all of these metrics that they've got. I assume they're very similar to Training Peaks, but I, I don't know for sure. I have a lot of faith in the training peak calculations just because of the amount of research and development they do behind the scenes on these things. But to be honest, it's probably becomes a, a, comes a, a case of you know close enough is good enough, because as I'll talk about soon, it's not so much we're going to use the performance management chart as the Holy Grail. We're going to use it as a piece of information, as a tool to inform what we're doing uh, in our training. It takes me back, I guess, uh, to my university years when a training a training management, a performance management chart didn't really exist, and I read this uh, paper around trimps, which is training impulses, uh, and essentially training peaks. Then took these papers and and developed their own algorithms. But what I would do is after my training sessions is I'd. Get the data off my heart rate monitor, which was just one that you scrolled through. It didn't actually download to anywhere. And I'd write it down on a piece of paper. And then I'd punch it into an Excel spreadsheet that I'd made up. And, and I'd take you know, the average heart rate in the, in the time that, I was, uh, that I'd done training and come up with this training impulse. And I essentially made my own uh, performance management chart uh, in Excel. And it was a heap of work, and I started using it with some of my athletes that I worked with earlier uh, in my coaching career. And I was just so stoked when uh, Training Peaks came out with something that actually did this all automatically because it was, a, it was too much work just doing it for one, doing it for yourself, you know, let alone doing it with all these other athletes that you work with. So definitely uh, if you want to go for the poor man, Matty option, you could crank out an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, if it all turns to custard, but definitely have a look at Elevate because it seems to be pretty solid. I had a question last time about the training stress balance, and it was, what does having a negative training stress balance actually mean? Like, is it a bad thing? If I see my yellow line is way down in the negatives, is it something that I need to, do I need to stop training and rest up? And the idea with the training stress balance, I guess, is again, it's that athletes looking at the numbers and getting a little bit uh, worried about what they actually mean. If your training is planned properly, there'll be periods of fatigue or load, such as load weeks, and then periods of recovery where that allows that line to come back up. So fatigue is a natural part of the training process and actually needs to happen for your performance to improve. So when you train hard during your load weeks and this may be two or three consecutive load weeks, you're going to see that yellow line dropping down and down and down. Now the key thing is is we want to we want to keep a note of how you're feeling at different training stress balances and if you get sick or run down or burnt out, what was your training stress balance score at that time? Because that's really powerful information to have for the future. But we don't want to let it get too low, but it's okay when it's in the negatives. If it's in, if it's not in the negatives, it means that you're not doing any training, essentially. And so that will start to come back up out. And, and replenish, if you like, get paid back when we have those recovery weeks uh, where we decrease our training load, focus on active recovery, that line will naturally come back up as you recover. So if it's always positive, we're not training hard enough. If it's always negative, we're probably training too hard. And that's where I'd say, if it's always negative and you're just going hard all of the time, that's, that's a problem you probably need to not so much look at your performance management chart and say, how do I get this line back up? Take it a step back further and have a look at your training. How am I structuring my training? Because if you structure your training in load blocks followed by recovery blocks, then your performance management chart will naturally take care of itself, essentially. So always think about not just the numbers and what the lines are doing, but how you're feeling as well. If your line is, is heading down, but it's still, you know, uh, quite positive, so it may be like negative 10, and you're starting to feel really tired and fatigued uh, and flat, and you think, well, you know, usually I push my uh, training stress balance down to negative and I'm, 50, and I'm fine. But at negative 10, you shouldn't be feeling like that. So potentially there's something else happening. There's more stress in your life. And which we'll talk about that in a minute, that the daily stress in your life doesn't actually get represented in your performance management chart. So we need to take a, be aware of that. So use it as a guide, but not the be-all and end-all. Nick, do you have any comments around that training stress balance and how we potentially use it day-to-day?
1: Yeah, I mean, training stress balance is, is also kind of referred to as, as freshness, and I think you might have mentioned that last week. So mm-hmm. it's a predicted number for the next day as well so you know you get a a tss for a given session which is a on that day yeah fatigue is on that day but the training stress balance is always how you're going to shape up the next day so it's always working a day ahead so you'll notice on your graphs that your your pink lines will be going up and down and generally the pink line of it spikes the yellow line will have an associated drop on the following day from it so you can kind of predict that okay after a hard session i'm going to be not as good or not feeling that fresh the next day So yeah, your training stress balance will go up and down, even though it can be negative, it can be up and down within that negative area. So you can think, as I'm getting closer and closer to my my peak race, you want that line to be on the rise. Um, As to what that number looks like, it's entirely up to to you. Like Matty was saying, you need to kind of work out what is a positive 5, is it 10, is it negative 10, where you're better off from a freshness point of view. Um, But as long as... Coming into race day, your line is rising for the following day, and that's generally going to happen because you're not going to be doing a hard session, which would be your pink line spiking um, the day or two before a big race.
0: Mm-hmm. I think as well that really helps athletes sort of understand the training that they the, they do and the sort of cause and the effect uh, response to it. When I first started uh, coaching and planning training, I didn't have training peaks to plan around in terms of, I can't put things into the computer and show what the performance management chart's going to look like. So I always revert back to kind of the underlying physiology of it all. And that's how I see training. Um, but it's for people that don't have that background, it's kind of hard for them to picture training that way. So I'll go out and plan my training uh, or somebody, somebody's training, and I'll know what the performance management chart is doing in my head without even putting the, num- the numbers in essentially. Because I know, put this load on, the line's going to start coming down. We're going to need some recovery phases here. The line's going to come back up. So it's sort of just all playing in the back of my head. But for athletes that don't have that deep understanding, it's a really good way to sort of learn what's happening behind the scenes, isn't it? Absolutely. With with all things, however, there are negatives or pitfalls or side effects, things that we need to be aware of. And, and a couple of those for training peaks we talked about in the last episode around neuromuscular stress. So if you're doing really high-intensity training, that power training that Nick ta- talked about last week, where the the work intervals are so short that your heart rate has no time to respond. And if you're using a heart-based TSS, then it's not going to reflect that stress in your performance management chart. If you're using a power meter, which is the gold standard for measuring training intensities, then that's going to be better reflected as well. So power training, high-intensity interval training, uh, and strength-based work where you're not measuring that stuff at all, these here are underrepresented in the performance management chart. And you could have done a really hard power, strength, or high-intensity interval session, and it actually has quite a low TSS. But the next day, you'll wake up and you'll find that you're really absolutely smoked from it. So it, again it's not the numbers not the holy grail the numbers just something we use to inform how we're feeling The other thing is, is we need to make sure that our zones are locked in because if your all of this is based off your training zones and how much time you're spending in relation to your uh your functional threshold power or functional threshold heart rate that anaerobic threshold type area so if you don't have your training zones uh, programmed in there, then the numbers that you're getting aren't truly reflective of what you're doing. And a really classic example of this is for runners. When you go out for a run and upload your data to Training Peak, it will naturally or automatically base it off a running TSS. And what that does is it bases the training stress score on how fast you are running compared to your pacing running zones that you may or may not have uploaded. And this can become quite confusing for a lot of people because they go out for a three-hour mountain run up a massive hill and they come back and they're completely smoked, and their TSS is 10 or 3 because they've been running so slowly compared to their functional threshold pace that the uh, training peaks rightly calculates that they've done no work essentially but when you change that to a heart rate heart rate based tss which you can do in the uh, session window down by tss you click a wee triangle a little drop down menu comes in and you just click heart rate tss when you do that it, it Calculate it correctly to, you know, 250 or 300 TSS, depending on how big or long the session was. So just be mindful of that. If you're an off-road runner, then that can be something that can trip you up. As well, Nick was commenting around swimming. Nick, do you want to talk about the swimming issues that can crop up?
1: Yeah, well, swimming, <clears throat> similar to to the running side of things, people that are wearing, uh, like, a garment that, will pick up your lap numbers, especially, and might be measuring your heart rate on your wrist. Um, A, for a starter, the heart rate on your wrist is probably slightly or majorly inaccurate, depending on how you'd like to look at that. But also, it'll give you a a swimming TSS based on how fast you've been swimming relative to a swimming pace that's set in uh, training peaks. Now, most people don't have it set in training peaks, so it's not really a a super accurate measure um, in terms of, prescriptive training for swimming um so you're going to get a really low generally i see numbers one two sometimes three at max from a swimming tss after maybe an hour of a decent swim endurance set so you want to make sure that if you are using your watch for swimming that you don't take note of that number or you correct that number and give it some sort of relative meaning um based on how intense you think that session was
0: yeah for sure that can be a tricky one as well eh? i and the other one where you are looking at your performance management chart and all of a sudden there's like uh, a tss or a little red dot that's like off the charts so much though that everything else shrinks down really really small and you've just got this outrageously high tss score and often if you go in and look at that session what can sometimes happen is a, c- a couple of different things can, can have happened. The first one is you've done, let's say you've ridden to work or run to work in the morning, and you've logged your session, stopped your watch when you got to work, and then turned it off. And then at the end of the day, you turn your watch back on, and you head home for your, you run home or you bike home, whatever it is, and you just push start again. You don't reset that, uh, they're, not, they're not two separate sessions. And so what Training Peaks does is say, right, you've done this amount of work over eight hours or nine hours or whatever it is, and it completely blows out the training stress score. So if you're doing multiple sets separated by a long time of recovery, whether you be at work or maybe you're doing another whatever you're doing, um, stop it, reset it, and save it as a different file. Because if you start doing multiple sessions on the one file, it takes into the, the accumulative time, even though you weren't doing anything over that time, uh, and it can, be, it can really mess with the, uh, the performance management chart. And the other one is if you stop it at the end of a session, go to sleep, and in the morning you get back up and you turn your watch back on and maybe you push start a little bit. And then you realize, oh, hang on, I need to reset it. So you stop it and you reset it again. The file that is from yesterday now includes all of the nighttime and that wee bit in the morning as well. So again, Training Peaks thinks that you've done a session, whatever the intensity was for the session, you've done that over 10 hours. And so it throws its calculations off again, and you'll get this massive spike in TSS. And you can go into Training Peaks and edit. And I spend a little bit of time doing that with uh, athletes' files, editing uh, off the tail end of it. Well, they may have driven home is another one. Jump in the car after a, a session, and they drive home with their Garmin still on. So it's recording the speed that they're traveling at in their car. And if they're a runner, that sends the TSS right through the roof or again it might be a long drive and so it just adds an extra hour onto the file few things to think about technology is incredibly helpful but technology is incredibly stupid as well uh, if you're not operating within the correct parameters that it's detecting do you have any other things to add to that nick
1: no i mean the conversation around training peaks is such a a detailed one, you know, we could sit here for weeks on end, probably nutting it out. But I think as a general training tool and understanding what that performance management chart is, uh, it's a good kind of, a good coverage for people. Brilliant.
0: And then to wrap up our Training Peak series for next episode, we are going to have a look at some of the other charts that are in our desktop around our um, training zones and then our critical powers or critical heart rates at different times and what that can tell us about our performance. And then that will wrap up our training peak series for the moment. Okay, team. So we're going to jump into another segment now, following on from last week's question. Last week, we had a question around fasted training. And I realized as I was talking, as I often do when I'm talking uh, on the podcast here, is that this is a lot deeper than I actually initially thought this question was going to be, and we're probably going to need a lot longer. So what I wanted to do is jump into the fasted training question a little deeper and think about fasted training, how we can use it, why we would use it, uh, and how, what that might look like within your training plan. So let's have a look at that. So a little bit of physiology around fasted training. I think the first thing to get your head around is what we're trying to achieve between racing and training in terms of nutrition, because this becomes a little bit of a nutrition question as well. When we're racing, we want to minimize stress on the body so we can perform at our optimal performance for as long as possible. So our nutrition strategies for that often revolve around high carbohydrate uh, and high hydration consumption so that we can minimize stress, minimize, minimize fatigue, and perform really well traditionally that approach has spilled over into training as well and the sort of high carbohydrate training diet comes comes from that we want to be able to give athletes as much energy as they can possibly get so they can do the training that is outlined by the coach however in recent times there's been a little bit more of a thought around that and that nutrition in itself is a training stress or a training stimulus And so when we're training, we're not actually looking at minimizing stress on the body. Definitely for some sessions we are. But for a lot of the sessions that we do, we're trying to maximize the stress because that there leads to the adaptations that we're after. So when we're thinking about fasted training, the key thing we need to think about is muscle glycogen. Muscle glycogen is the stored energy or the stored carbohydrate that's in our muscle and our liver. So we've got sort of two fuel tanks. We've got our liver. And we've got the glycogen that's stored in the muscle. As this fuel tank starts to get low, there's a wee fuel light that comes on that says we need to top these up. Not only does it say we need to top these up, but it says for next time, how about we get slightly bigger fuel tanks so we don't run out of fuel again? And what happens there, and it sort of flick a switch at a genetic level that flicks on a cascade of events that allows more mitochondria to be produced now mitochondria are the the power stations of the body by in a simple in a simple way the more of them you have and the bigger they are the better at endurance you're going to be because what they do is they allow you to make energy aerobically out of not only carbohydrate sources but also fat sources and if you uh, produce energy from fat you get a lot more energy uh, for the investment if you like more bang for your buck so what that what happens is the little light switch that gets flicked on is called PGC 1 alpha and it's responsible for a, a massive list of different endurance adaptations but the ones we're most interested in uh, when it comes to fasted training is mitochondrial biogenesis which simply means making more of these power stations, Uh, an increase in oxidative capacity which means that we've got more enzymes that metabolize fat for fuel and then also uh, angiogenesis which is just a big complicated word that means making new blood vessels. So if we're flicking on the PGC-1-alpha light switch, we flick it on and these things start to happen. One of the major ways that this PGC-1-alpha light switch gets flicked on is energy depletion. So low levels, when that fuel gauge shows that red light that we need to top up with fuel, this this light switch gets flicked, saying that we need more mitochondria, more power stations, We need more blood vessels going to these power stations and we need more workers, the enzymes, at these power stations to produce more energy out of fat. Because when we run out of glycogen in the future, we don't want to hit a wall and not be able to complete whatever we're doing in the case of a survival situation. So when we train in a depleted state or we get to a depleted level, then we flick that light switch. Now, fasted training just sort of fast tracks us flicking that light switch, which speeds up those events. So rather than going out for a four-hour ride, at the end of the four-hour session, you're obviously depleted, you're tired, uh, maybe you've been eating a little bit here and there to get you through it. Maybe we could get that same benefit from an hour and a half or two hours of training without eating, because we have shortcutted the circuit a little bit and just flicked that switch on after two hours, rather than having to do four hours of work where we've been drip-feeding the engine. So that's a little bit of the background, I guess, of why we might want to do faster training from a physiological level. So now what Nick's going to do is he's going to sort of talk about the real-world application of it. How do we do these sort of sessions? Nick.
1: Well, <clears throat> one word that you used in there, Matty, was, was deprivation. So, I mean, to be deprived of food is essentially what a fasted training is all about. So fasted is, yeah, being deprived of food and in and, and some cases um, hydration as well. So there are kind of three, three ways we can look at how we deprive ourselves of, of food and especially carbohydrate uh, before our training. Two of them would be around sort of low-carbohydrate, high-fat diets or the LCHF. Community, um, and also the keto community. So both of them are evolving, reducing carbohydrate in the diet naturally. So therefore, when we go and train, we are low in carbohydrate in the system. So our muscle glycogen might be a bit lower, or we can actually go into a have a normal carbohydrate diet uh, through the day, but we are fasted. So we're eating potentially tea the night before, not eating through the night, which we generally don't do. We get up in the morning. We go train without having our breakfast. So we've got this big window, you know, sort of in that realm of 12 to to 16 hours without food, uh, and then we're training on a a fasted state. So that can also play into that kind of intermittent fasting uh, paradigm as well, where people are fasting for 16 hours and eating for a window of time and then training in the mornings beforehand. So that nutrient deprivation or or the fasted training at eating a normal diet throughout the rest of the day. is probably the easiest option for everybody to jump into tomorrow if they really wanted to. You know, you go and have your normal dinner tonight, get up in the morning and do some sort of, of exercise without eating breakfast. So to, to supercharge that, that nutrient deprivation or fasted session the, in the morning, you could also apply a lower carbohydrate dinner the night before. So you know, remove your breads, your pastas, your rice, your starchy, potatoes, kumara, whatever it is you're having, uh, and focus on some some nice vegetables and meat, um, and therefore you're going to be even more kind of depleted or, or lower in, in glycogen uh, the next day when you train. And that might be sort of a, a step in the moving down that lower carbohydrate uh, sort of spectrum for a, an athlete if they wanted to, uh, because adopting a, an LCHF or a keto lifestyle is a lot different. Um, there are some some really cool health benefits for it too, there are also some, some complications and some things you have to address, especially if you're living with other people that don't want to go down that pathway. The cooking component behind it and the the, the nutritional uh, changes you have to make are quite tricky. Um, and there's a lot of things you have to rule out. And you know, there's different groups. Some people say you can't eat that, you can eat this, and it gets pretty pretty messy pretty quick. But utilising some sort of lower carbohydrate, uh, high fat diet in different times of your training. Uh, sort of base plans and and so forth, especially through the winter time when you're trying to maybe improve your body composition, so you're trying to lose some weight, can be a really nice approach and an easy approach to doing so um, compared to eating a, a higher carbohydrate spectrum. Um, another approach to faster training or training in a, a glycogen depleted state is to do a double session a day or a late night session, early morning session. So it takes quite some time to fully replenish our glycogen stores. If we go out and do a, an hour and a half or a couple of hours of a, a running, biking, swimming session, um, it can take a good 24 hours, if not longer, to fully replenish those glycogen stores, depending on how much we're actually eating. Obviously, you have to eat more carbohydrate to replenish more. So one way if you're training in the morning, and then you're training again late afternoon early evening you're not going to be fully recovered from that first session so you're going to be putting your body back into that stressed state and sort of looking to increase those adaptations that maddie was talking about before without having to do your faster training or do a lower carbohydrate diet and so forth so certainly a double day session is as a good intermediate step so you've got your fast sessions Keeping your diet the same is the easy option. Double-day sessions is another easy option. And from there, you can look to to kind of manipulate your dietary intakes uh, around carbohydrate consumption and and so forth to to maximize uh, your training adaptations that way.
0: I think as well, like like if you're looking for the benefits of this type of training, and a lot of people will just jump straight to the top, low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, And it's it's a really big change, but just integrating uh, a couple of sessions into your training that have just where you get up in the morning and don't have breakfast and go—that's a really easy change to make. So it's not like you've got to overhaul your entire lifestyle uh, to uh, implement this training. And And I guess that brings us to that to our next point of how do we integrate this into a training plan? Because just like anything, like you talked about sprint interval training last week. And I can guarantee some people went away and now that's all they're doing is sprint interval training. I can guarantee that someone will listen to this and now they're just not going to eat before every single session that they do. And we need to remember that these are just different training tools that we can use for different jobs. So essentially training is all about just turning on different switches in our body to get the different results that we're after. And so we don't want to do it all of the time because we're not trying to get the same training adaptations every time. Even though it kind of seems like we are, but we're trying to get faster in our sport. So we go out training to try and get faster. But the way we're getting faster is very different uh, at different phases of our training. So let's think about our training build-up. And during our base phase is an ideal time to use Uh, Nutrient deprivation or fasted training because the main adaptations that we're looking for during our base training is improved aerobic capacity or uh, improved aerobic endurance, that ability to produce energy aerobically for a prolonged period of time. Base training is traditionally uh, made up of long slow distance or long steady distance training with the idea that we're trying to get those adaptations that we talked about at the start. But we can actually shortcut or speed up how we get those adaptations, not by uh, doing more training, but actually doing less training or doing different training. So rather than going out and doing our long rides that might be three hours, like I said, we can maybe get that out of 90 minutes because we've got about 90 minutes of stored muscle glycogen in our body. So if we get up in the morning and don't have breakfast, then our liver glycogen is already depleted because we use that in the, in the night to keep our brain alive. And then we go out and our muscle glycogen, we're relying solely on that. That gets driven down pretty quickly. And after about 90 minutes, we start to feel flat and start to bonk. That there is that time when that light fl- uh, little switch gets flicked and says, let's make uh, more mitochondria, let's make more blood vessels, let's upregulate our fat uh, oxidation enzymes. So that's really cool. We can get the same benefits, less training, which is ideal as if, if you're busy. If you're an athlete, that's juggling family life as well. If you just don't want to spend huge amounts of time out training, which during winter, which is often when our base phase is held, is not always the most appealing thing to be doing because it could potentially be wet and cold. Also the longer that we spend our training, the less time we've got for recovery that we have for other things in our lives and it also increases our risk of overuse injuries as well. If you've got to go and get this, the, do a four hour session, the chances of getting a overuse injury during that session compared to doing an hour and a half session or a two hour session are much greater so it's uh, so this way that we can sort of be a little smarter about what we do depending on what we're trying to get out so during our base phase great time to try some of this training we don't want to do it during our higher intensity speed phase leading into a race because during that time the physiological adaptations that we're after are all related to our training intensity in terms of we want to train hard so that we get our body used to being to produce energy at a high intensity if you are nutrient deprived or you're fasted before these sessions you're not able to reach the allocated uh, training intensity Or you may find that you're fine for that session, but remember a training program is more than just one session in isolation, but you may be so fatigued from that session that the session in two days time, that's when you start to feel the negative side effects of uh, doing faster training. So we want to make sure that we are well-fueled during our high-intensity sessions and also during that speed phase, we want to start training our gut To be able to tolerate the race nutrition that we're planning to take in during the race because if you just train all of the time fasted your stomach and your and gi tract so your intestines never get used to having food in them and then having to work to get the the energy or the macronutrients the carbohydrate the fat the protein out and into your bloodstream to the working muscles So as soon as you come to race day, it's just like any other aspect of your training. If you haven't done any runs before you go and run a marathon, it's going to be hard. If you haven't done any training with food in your stomach before uh, a race, then it's going to cause problems because your body's not used to it. So we really want to get that balance right between getting the adaptations that we're after but also addressing these other aspects of our performance because we don't sort of operate in this silo of, okay, we've got all of our endurance adaptations uh, and we should be fine. But all of those endurance adaptations rely on our body to be able to deliver energy, deliver macronutrients to the working muscles as well. So we need to have that balance there. Uh, that's really important. Uh also, as a note, and we will cover this uh, in our next section as well, but we, during our recovery weeks, we don't want to be doing fasted training during, during our recovery, recovery weeks. It's completely counterproductive for active recovery training to do it fasted. We want to minimize the stress on our body during an active recovery week so that it can recover, so that training stress balance can head back up uh, towards where it needs to be. And the final thing I'd say is that if you are doing this fasted training, nutrient deprivation training, after the session, your recovery nutrition becomes so much more important. Otherwise, uh, we start to get run down, we start to get sick, we start to get flat because we haven't given given our bodies the stuff that it needs after training. And that sort of leads quite nicely into some considerations that we need to think about in terms of uh, safety or potential risks that this
1: training uh, creates. So, yeah, a couple of couple of populations that need to be careful would be those people that are, or those women that are pregnant, um, and sort of adolescents or, or teenagers, um, especially female teenagers. And both of those two groups are around the, the the lower availability in terms of energy when we're doing this. So it's putting a huge stress on the system because we're reducing the energy into the system um, and the body's having to prioritise sort of exercise and and the working muscles over and above uh, normal daily functions. Um, And that's sort of probably self-explanatory from a pregnancy point of view. Um, And for developing growing teenagers, they need a lot more energy uh, than your average adult from a, a growth point of view. So we don't want to be restricting their the energy input any more than we can. Um, those that have sort of blood glucose regulation issues, uh, mainly diabetics, need to be very careful and we do certainly recommend they consult a, a medical professional before they undertake this sort of training. Um, also, one thing to make sure you always have in your back pocket is food when you are doing these sort of sessions. Uh, you don't want to be stuck an hour and a half from home hitting the wall completely and you got no food to get yourself home. Um, once you're starting to hit the wall and you're starting to feel pretty average, and your body's just like, right, I'm done. That's when you need to eat and you need to get yourself home. Um, that's sort of the the tipping point from when you've you've maximised the benefits from the session, um, and now it's all about recovery and getting yourself back home safely. So make sure you've got enough food and you're you know you're not too far from home at that kind of point in your sessions. And you'll get to know when they are. You know, are you an hour and a half? Are you two hours? depending on your, the sort of session you're doing. Um, also, <clears throat> these sessions are quite impactful on the immune system, um, and as we've talked about before, you know, carbohydrate ingestion during training can really strengthen the immune system and stop us getting sick from training. So when we take that away and we go fasted, and we don't eat during session as well, then we're going to increase the chances of picking up some sort of uh, infection or a, a cough or cold from our training. So. Um, And we probably wouldn't recommend it at the moment, certainly with the the risks around COVID-19 around the world, Um, and especially here in New Zealand as we're we're moving more into winter as well. That increase in stress that we are seeing from these sort of sessions uh, isn't actually going to be reflected in our TSS score if we link this back to our Training Peaks conversation earlier on, because TSS is based around heart rate or it's based around power output, and taking away our food doesn't change what our heart rate's doing. It makes us feel like the session's a lot harder, but it's not actually increasing the overall intensity of that session. So something to be mindful of when you're looking through your your training peaks and thinking, man, I feel a lot more run down from a a certain session. Um, And you can link back and be like, actually, that was a a nutrient deprivation session um, or I was fasted for it or I was going through a block of LCHF. So it's always good to be able to put that information into your training peaks as well. So you can click back on a a given uh, exercise session and just see what you're up to at that stage, of if, if you felt like you re- didn't recover quick enough from a, a certain session.
0: Yeah, I think as well, like, it's this is super effective training. Like, the first time you go out and do this, you may, and a really good way of doing it is if you're so used to consuming food and fluid during these sessions, uh, during your normal training, is to go out and just get up in the morning and have breakfast if you're a bit nervous about it, because a lot of people are actually quite nervous about doing their first one and then just go out and do your session, but just don't eat anything during the session. So you've had breakfast, so it's like ease yourself into it a little bit. And then the the following weekend, get up in the morning and don't have breakfast and then go out and do your session. And what you'll find is that the first one is usually pretty rough around about that 90 minute mark, Like you don't usually need too much more than about 90 minutes and then you're done. But the next time you go back, you'll get to 90 minutes and you're like, oh, it's 90 minutes already. Uh, And it's really uh, interesting and quite surprising how quickly your body adapts to training without food Uh, and just being able to produce more energy aerobically from those fat supplies that you've got stored uh, in your body. So it's a very effective way of doing it, uh, but it's not an all or nothing, and I cannot stress that enough because I know exactly what will happen. And this is kind of why I've held off having a segment like this on the podcast, because it is a, one, a very powerful training tool, but it's one that I see used and abused all the time, all the time. So make sure if you're going to use it, you're smart about it. And that way you're going to get the most out of it. If you just apply and apply a blanket, sort of recommendation of go and do this training now forever, your performance will get worse because you're not hitting on those other aspects of your training or not hitting on those other aspects of your training uh, as good as you possibly could. Like if you're doing anaerobic threshold training and you're doing it fasted, then you're not going to get the full benefits out of that anaerobic threshold type training that you're doing. Uh, so it's, it's counterproductive. So make sure that you're smart about how you implement this into your training. Any final thoughts on that, Nick?
1: Uh, the last last thought I would leave you with is of recent years, and it probably is a couple of years now, we've heard a lot about this, you know, hashtag fat adapted, and although the keto low-carb guys are, are all about hashtag fat adapted, But you don't have to have a restricted carbohydrate diet to increase your fat oxidation. You know, you can do it through these fasted training sessions and eat a regular carbohydrate diet, maximizing your high-intensity sessions and and so forth. So don't feel like you have to go down the the nutrition pathway in terms of altering your carbohydrate intake for the rest of your life to become a a hashtag fat-adapted endurance king or queen. There are multiple other options. Um, and it's just a matter of finding the the best fit to your lifestyle and what you're trying to achieve.
0: Also, I think that's a really good message to finish on. And, um, yeah, know that you've got options, and these are just different training tools, okay? They're just different training tools to use at different times. Just like a builder, building a house uses different tools at different times uh, when when they're needed, And we don't use a saw to hammer and nails, and we don't use a hammer to saw wood. Uh, And when we get inside the house, once most of it's done, we start to have to use more precision to finish off the house before we start to get to that that key race day. And that's really what training is uh, in a nutshell, is building a house, lay a good foundation, add the details, and then those finishing touches before we um, get to the start line. And so I'm going to leave... You guys, with that, have a great day out there. Whatever you're doing, get out there and remember to train hard because that is really, really important. You cannot get good results without hard training. But the most important thing is to remember to train smart. We'll talk to you next week. mate thanks for listening if you would like to support this podcast and see it continue into the future you can do so in a number of ways firstly make sure you subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you are listening like and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word If you're feeling really generous, head over and leave a review and a rating over on iTunes. This helps spread the word and develop the podcast. All of this will help the podcast continue long into the future so we can keep bringing you the information you need to train hard, but most importantly, train smart.